Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. Iowa Republicans will caucus on Monday night. Last night at Drake University in Des Moines, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis spent two hours sniping at each other, pleading with voters not to believe a word the other person uttered. Their encounter was televised on CNN. Across town in a friendly town hall broadcast on Fox, Donald Trump answered questions with a barrage of incongruous and meandering perorations. Chris Christie has dropped out of the race, which is considered a boost for Haley. If the former U.N. ambassador does well enough in Iowa, some polling indicates she might have a chance to come closer or even beat Trump a week later in New Hampshire. But Trump's baffling lead is still substantial in both places. So as we continue our conversations this year here on Midday about national and local politics leading up to the elections in May and in November, let me remind you of where I stand in my position as the moderator of those conversations. I do not endorse candidates for local, state, and federal office. Over the next several weeks, I will welcome candidates to our show to share their vision for the offices they seek, and I look forward to exploring their perspectives on the issues. When it comes to the presidential race, I do make an exception to that personal policy. If Donald Trump is elected president in 2024, it will be an international disaster. He is mendacious and dangerous. He is, as I have said for the past six years, ill-informed, uninformed, and a bigot. We are a great country, and we can do better. Now, that said, if you support Mr. Trump or candidates for office who join him in denying the results of the last election, you are welcome at this table to talk about why that is. I hope that Midday will always be a forum for frank, candid, and productive conversations about that which divides us and that which we can agree on. Today on Midday, we're talking local politics. It's the latest installment in our series of conversations with the candidates in which I'm speaking with people who are running in the primaries that take place on May 14th. My guest today is Baltimore City Councilman Zeke Cohen. He was first elected to the council in 2016. He's in his second term representing the 1st District, one of the few areas in our city that has seen population growth in the last 10 years. He's giving up that seat to run for City Council President, the office currently held by Council President Nick Mosby. A former educator, Zeke Cohen has been a staunch advocate for trauma-informed care. In 2019, he introduced legislation that made Baltimore the first city in the U.S. to legislate that all city agencies receive training in the science and symptomatology of trauma. Zeke Cohen holds an undergraduate degree from Goucher College and a master's in public policy from Johns Hopkins. He is 38 years old. He's married with two young children. He and his family live in Brewers Hill. Councilman Cohen joins me today in Studio A. You are welcome to join us as well. Our number, 410-662-8780. Our email, midday at wypr.org. Councilman, good to see you, sir. Great to be with you, Tom. Thanks for having me. So um, what's the job of the city council president? That's a great question. So unlike in most legislative bodies, ours is an elected position, and it is not selected by the membership. So you think about in Congress, they, of course, have the speaker, 
Uh, that's how most legislative bodies do it. The, yeah, Baltimore County just elected their new uh, president. That's right. Montgomery yeah. County, same story, right? So, but the council does it, not the electorate. Correct. So in the city of Baltimore, we, the people, not just the elected representatives, get to determine who the city council president is. And that person is sort of similar to a House speaker. They get to determine who chairs which committee, where legislation goes. They are, in some ways, a traffic cop. But they're also the leader of the legislative branch. And that's why I'm incredibly excited about this campaign and the opportunity for Baltimore. What's your assessment of the things that the current council has accomplished or not accomplished? How do you think you all have done as a body these last in this term in particular and perhaps you know, your last two terms here? Look, so I would say my first term, we were really on fire as a city council. I think there was a lot of energy around uh, making the independent, uh, making the IG, the inspector general independent, um, banning source of income discrimination, doing uh, a major complete streets ordinance, a lot of great work by council member Bullock around affordable housing and funding the affordable housing trust fund. Uh, there was, of course, the legislation that we passed around trauma-informed care, but also transparency and lobbying, which really sought to get at the core of some of the rot that we've seen in city government around corruption. Look, I think there was a lot of great work being done. I will say we have been, I think, less productive in this last term. I do, of course, lift up the inclusionary housing law that was just passed and credit to Councilmember Ramos for her leadership there. And uh, look, look, I have some great colleagues on the city council, but I would say that the council is divided, and I would not say that this has been as productive of a term. And again, I do have to give credit to the former mayor, city council president, Jack Young, who, uh, while we did not always agree, and he had, uh, we, we had some phone calls where he would call me up and cuss me out and be very upset. I, I give him a lot of credit in that he was a real leader and he put folks in positions to be successful even when he did not always agree with them. Does Jack Young then serve as a paradigm for you? I mean, if things in fact have not been as productive as they could have been, uh, perhaps should have been, and I think that's an assessment that a lot of people share with you, um, what can, as a city council president, if you're elected, what could you do to turn that around? Absolutely. So, look, I think a few things. One is I want to see the council play a stronger oversight role. I think that we really do have a role to play in making sure that we are delivering great city services to the people that live in Baltimore. And, Tom, I've knocked we, my, my campaign. We've knocked about a little over 17,000 doors. And the thing that comes up more than anything else is folks will say, you know, look, we get it. The property taxes are very high in this city and it's definitely a problem but i'm willing to pay a little bit more if i get excellent city services in baltimore and for most people they're just not feeling that right now and i think about specifically around recycling pickup the fact that we are still not weekly uh the fact that we had four pools including patterson park in my district that were not open on time during the summer i think about the many challenges that developers and small businesses face in getting permits like it should not be this difficult and i want to see the city council playing a much stronger role in oversight i also think one of the first things that i intend to do in partnership with whoever the mayor is 
is really do a deep dive on human resources and think about where are the vacancies because and this is a national problem this is a problem that the governor and the state government is having but we know we are very short when it comes to police officers firefighters ems uh sanitation workers cdl drivers dot rec and park we know that we have massive gaps in many of our agencies and it is not sustainable and so i want to work with the administration, with my colleagues on the council to assess, look, why do we have such a shortage in housing inspectors, right? I mean, what, from what I have been told, you can make about $10,000 more starting salary to go work as a housing inspector in Baltimore County than you can in Baltimore City. And it is a easier job over there. And so I want to think about how do we really become competitive with the jurisdictions that are around us and make Baltimore a great place to come and work and do public service. Well, police, fire, EMS, I mean, uh, all of the heads of those agencies have, uh, most of them have come on this show and said, yes, we're really short. Obviously, you know, folks can understand that that can be uh, literally a life and death situation if uh, calls, emergency calls can't be answered, you know, quickly. But when it comes to the other things, the permits and, uh, you know, the, the stuff at DPW and uh, recycling, that kind of stuff, um, is it is it simply a matter of vacancies or is it inefficacy? Is it is it bad management? Um, because the management part of it, most people would would say is in the purview of the mayor's office, not in the purview of the chief legislator, the city council president, or even the council as a general body. I mean, what can the council do to improve the efficacy of the, you know, the execution of city services uh, by the administration? Absolutely. So, Tom, what I would say is that the council actually has a real role to play in doing consistent, meaningful oversight. And that means really digging in on the deficiencies, whether it's the vacancies, whether it's uh, disparities in pay or benefits, whether that means are we executing projects on time? How are we thinking about the 311 system or any of the accountability systems around police stat or city stat, right? I, I actually think there is a real role for the city council to play in holding our agencies accountable. And look, I intend to be collaborative. I have a great relationship with the mayor, uh, have a great relationship with both of the leading candidates that are running for mayor, but it ain't personal. And I wanna make sure that while we are collaborating and supporting our mayor, that we are holding city agencies accountable to deliver great results for the residents that live here. Because that is what I hear overwhelmingly at the doors is folks are not feeling like they're getting enough out of their very high taxes that we're paying. You know, nobody would argue with accountability. Everybody is all for accountability. But it's tricky, isn't it? Because accountability uh, can sometimes only mean, uh, hey, you shouldn't have done that. Um, I think about the, the BGE conduit deal. You know, there were plenty of people on the council who opposed it, and they said, hey, we oppose it, and it went through anyway. When we think about recycling, you and Councilman Costello a year ago sent a letter 
that said, you know, Jason Mitchell, the then Kessler Schleifer. Uh, oh, excuse me, Schleifer. Yes, um, sent a, a letter saying, you know, it needs to uh, be resumed, uh, you know, once a week instead of once every two weeks. Uh, the mayor even came on this show and said, "Yep, it's going to happen in you know a month or two. And you know, here we are a year later, and it hasn't happened. So th- then what? You know, um, when we think about redistricting. Uh, that whole process uh, played out, uh, and you know you, you all were very involved as a council, but the mayor got his way uh, ultimately because of the city charter, you know, uh, or at least that's what it was, you know, in part blamed on because the the process was such that it, there was a limited time. So when it comes to accountability, what is what does that mean? What what's the leverage that the legislative body has? Yeah, so look, make no mistake, Tom, and, and you are world expert in this. This is a strong mayor sy- system that we are in, right? The, the mayor controls the board of estimates. The mayor, uh, the veto threshold is very high in this city. The mayor sets the budget. The mayor, the agencies report to the mayor. So I, make no doubt there is a strong emphasis on the executive and not the legislative branch. But I think the legislature, the city council, is an underutilized body in our city. And I think it has two main responsibilities. One is to legislate. And so when you think about redistricting, I know that the council president just put out some legislation to revamp that process. I think it was a charter amendment that would essentially prevent the mayor from doing what uh, the mayor did this last time, which is to pocket veto uh, the city council's redistricting plan. I'm actually going to take that a step further. I'm going to be introducing legislation and a charter amendment that would create an independent commission that would determine the map, because I actually think the very notion of politicians, elected officials determining their districts is inherently political and inherently leads to backdoor dealing and the kinds of uh, negotiations that aren't always healthy for the people that we serve. And I want to really put community in place to make those types of decisions. So I think the legislature, as you said, we're the legislative branch of government. I think we have a lot more to do when it comes to actually legislating. And I think there is a real oversight role. I think that when I look at our public safety, and I appreciate the chairman of the public safety committee who holds a monthly meeting with our police and with uh, some of the Monsi and some of the other agencies. But I think there is still more to do in connecting different agencies, making sure that the Department of Juvenile Services is at the table, making sure that community organizations that are doing a lot of the lift right now around public safety are at the table. So I want to really expand how we think about oversight in our city. And I'll say specifically, when I chaired the Education and Youth Committee, uh, last term, you know, Tom, we held our hearings in schools and in rec centers. And to me, it was about making sure residents of this city understand that we work for them. We we are elected officials. We are public servants. We are not kings and queens. And we need to make sure that when we do our work, we are doing it in community and with community. And I think there's a feeling of drift right now, not unique to Baltimore, but where folks just feel like the city council is not as responsive and connected as it should be. When we talk about community, for example, this redistricting commission you're proposing, yeah. who would serve on it and why? What, what, what would qualify them to come up with 
you know, to, to have a certain level of erudition and, and expertise in how districts should be done. Because on the one hand, districts could be done by a computer quite equitably. I mean, you got to have, you know, X number of districts with roughly the same number of constituents in each one. That, you know, there's AI. There are robots who can do that. Yeah, and so I don't want to overly step on my own legislation because we are still developing it, and we had a great meeting yesterday with a number of community association leaders. Uh, and so I'm going to be a little uh, careful in the words that I choose, but essentially what we are trying to do is create a commission of residents from each of the districts that would serve to determine the map. They would hire a GIS consultant. That's who essentially would build the map. And what then GIS mean? Uh, geographic Information Services. Mm -hmm. That That's like the folks who work on mapping. We hired one. Uh, I think President Mosby hired one this last go round so that he could have his own version of a map. Um, we would hire, they would hire that person. That person would come with a map. The commission would debate it and determine it. But here's the deal. They would have to do a town hall in each of the 14 districts, right? That did not happen this go round. And I think a lot of the frustration, Tom, that I heard was when the mayor rolled out his map, it was sort of like, where, where did this come from? And who have you been talking to? Who's been consulted? And there was just sort of this sense that community was not in the room for it. And, and I again, I think that trust is a really uh, tough to come by commodity right now when it comes to public servants. Again, not just a Baltimore problem. We certainly see this. You mentioned uh, President Trump and all the issues going on in Congress. But I think that the more proximity that we can have to community, the better. And so the idea would be that folks uh, from a randomized selection in each district who apply could be on the co committee, that there would not be any kind of erudition requirement. You don't have to have a master's degree. We want the mix of Baltimoreans, but that they would help to shape the map before it goes to the mayor and city council. First District Baltimore City Councilman Zeke Cohen is my guest. He's with me here in Studio A as part of our Conversations with the Candidates series. Mr. Cohen is a candidate for City Council President in the Democratic primary in May. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, you are welcome to join us. 410-662-8780. Our email midday at WIPR.org. We'll talk about taxes. We'll talk about population decline. We'll talk about the future of the city of Baltimore. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. You're listening to Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow, it's the Midday News Wrap. The General Assembly has begun its 2024 deliberations, and we'll take a look at some of the issues that lawmakers will be considering this session with WIPR News Director Matt Bush and Hallie Miller of the Baltimore Banner. Plus, the rapper and actor Wordsmith previews Network to Freedom. That's his new piece about the Underground Railroad. So that's on the way tomorrow. And if you've just joined us today, it's the latest in our series of conversations with the candidates. My guest is Baltimore City Councilman Zeke Cohen, who is running in the Democratic primary for City Council President here in Baltimore. You are welcome to join us. 410-662-8780. Our email midday 
at WIPR.org. So, Councilman, we have a uh, question on email from a person who wishes to remain anonymous. says that uh, they're from District 1. What can you and the council do regarding property tax solutions for property owners? So the implication there is that property taxes are too high. There is a renewed effort by a group called Renew Baltimore to put on the ballot uh, a measure that would force the city to reduce property taxes uh, over a period of the next few years uh, in a predictable but rather dramatic way. It would really reduce the revenue coming into the city. Uh, what's your stance on that uh, and, and, and your, your understanding of where we're headed when it comes to property taxes? Yeah, so let me first say that it is clearly not sustainable to be double the property taxes of Baltimore County. I mean, I have constituents that live right on the city county line and they if they moved a couple doors down would be paying half the property taxes that is not sustainable for the long term for baltimore city however i do not support the renew baltimore plan and i'll tell you why i think it would essentially put our city into bankruptcy i think that we would go into receivership i think that it is far too aggressive in the hopeful but I, I would say inaccurate belief that because we simply chop property taxes that people will want to move into our city. Again, that's not what I hear when I knock doors in our neighborhoods. What I hear is about increasing public safety. What I hear is about better city services. And yes, property taxes come up, but if we can get our schools into a great place, if we can get our uh, law enforcement to be world class. I think that's what Baltimoreans want. And the reality is, despite what folks will sell you, it is a binary. We have a choice. If you dramatically cut property taxes, you get less city services. And so I would not support that plan. What I would support, however, is an honest conversation about a regional approach to lowering the property taxes in Baltimore City. I think that this is where having Governor Wes Moore, who himself was a Baltimorean as of two years ago, having Comptroller Brooke Learman, who lives in our city, having Senate President Bill Ferguson, who is a Baltimorean, having Adrian Jones, who uh, represents Baltimore County and is the Speaker of the Maryland House of Delegates, having that kind of leadership that understands that for our city to thrive, we need to be economically competitive, bringing those folks into the room with the mayor, with the city council president, and figuring out how do we get to a space where we are competitive with Baltimore County or Anne Arundel or any of these places where people have a choice to move to. I think that's how we lower property taxes, but to do it on a ballot initiative, one, I don't believe is constitutional, but two, I think would be a huge mistake for the city. But having a meeting is all well and good. But then where does the extra money come from? If, if the assumption is that much money is necessary, you know, for the, what, $4.3 billion budget we have here in the city. Um, if, if, the, if the amount of money that it takes to provide the services has to stay the same, uh, and if it doesn't come from property taxes, then where does it come from? Well, again, this is where, and we know the state has a significant challenge as well in their fiscal situation, but we are going to need some support from the state of Maryland. The reality is that folks who 
live in Baltimore County and work in Baltimore City benefit from our city services, utilize our roads, utilize our police and fire and 911 system, and don't pay into it in the same way that Baltimoreans who live here do. We have built a city that benefited the suburb. We are unique. I think it's us and St. Louis are two of the very few in the country that have a Baltimore City and a Baltimore County and never the two shall meet. Yeah, that is not jurisdictions. Right? It, it, it's not sustainable and it has been built in a way to benefit the suburbs. And I think we need to be honest about that. I think we need to be honest about how when we built highways through Baltimore City neighborhoods, the uh, racist implications of that. And we are now seeing the results, which is money has moved into the suburbs, the tax base has moved, and we as a city are put in a massive disadvantage. And so that is why I think the state has a real stake and interest in supporting, helping Baltimore to be able to lower our property tax rate. And I think we have to do it, but I just think we need to be really smart and really strategic and not just do it with an ax. And on that note, we have about 70,000 fewer people living in the city now than we did 10 years ago. Uh, and John in Parkville is on the line, and he wants to talk about population decline. Welcome to Midday with Councilman Cohen. Thank you, Tom. And uh, Councilman Cohen, I was going to talk to you about your plans uh, to, as city council president, a citywide elected official, to increase the population, given that during your term on the city council, as Tom just mentioned, the city population has declined. But I must, as a Baltimore County resident, go into a little more detail with you about your last comments. How would you have a regional tax-sharing program that would not incentivize people like me to leave Baltimore County, leave the state in total? Because as I as uh, Comptroller Lehrman has documented, not only is Baltimore City losing population, but Baltimore County and the state of Maryland are losing population. So how do you create a regional tax-sharing program that does not exacerbate that movement out of state? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I really appreciate you calling in. And look, here's the reality. While the city's population has shrunk, in my district, we actually grew by 5,700 people, a little bit more in the last census. And we did it through partnerships. We did it by rebuilding four of our schools. Um, I used to be a teacher and I taught in a school that lacked heat, air conditioning, and drinkable potable water. It looked more like a jail, frankly, than a school. And I'm really proud that we in Southeast rebuilt Patterson High School, John Rura, uh, Graceland Park, Hollybird Academy, and they are beautiful 21st century schools. We rebuilt Dipsky Park. We redeveloped O'Donnell Heights, which was our only remaining public housing. Uh, and created really beautiful uh, what's called Keys Point, which is mixed income housing. We have seen an infusion of businesses, both small, medium, and in some cases large, throughout Southeast Baltimore. And what I'm arguing is if we can do that in one submarket in our city, we can do that across the board. There is no reason with all of the amazing assets that we have with some of the best hospitals in the world, some of the best universities, incredible, Tom, as you know, choral arts and cultural institutions. Like Baltimore punches above its weight level when it comes to our small businesses, our restaurants, our just about everything. This is such an incredible place to be. But I think the question is, 
how do we not just grow population, but retain population, right? I think that we are incredibly well geographically positioned. We're right next to DC. We're on the Acela Express. We're near New York and Philadelphia. We ha finally have a president of the United States that I think is deeply invested in infrastructure, and we're starting to see investments in the train station, in the uh, east-west red line. We're hoping that that gets built. But I think it comes down to making this city, making the value proposition so great that when folks go to a Goucher college like I did, they decide, you know what, I want to stick around. Because I'll tell you, I am getting to live my American dream. My wife's a physician. She serves patients in Cherry Hill at Harbor Hospital. I get to serve all these amazing people in Southeast Baltimore. We're raising two kids. Our daughter is at Hampstead Hill, a great Baltimore City public school. To me, it comes down to if we can provide excellent services, if we can make sure all of our schools are not only mediocre but great, if we can provide public safety, that's how we actually retain and attract people to come live here. I don't think there's some magic formula out there, but I do think that Baltimore is right on the brink of a renaissance. I think that we have more alignment with our friends in Annapolis than ever since I've been on the political scene. And I think that if we can't win in this moment, we are never going to win. And that's why I'm just excited to uh, be running this campaign and get to talk to folks all over Baltimore about what we could do to be great. Baltimore City Councilman Zeke Cohen. He's a candidate for city council president in the Democratic primary coming up in May. Uh, we had a caller who we just dropped uh, who had a question about Harbor Place and the development uh, that David Bramble and MCB Real Estate has uh, suggested. Um, you mentioned how the district... Oh, excuse me. We, we do have her. Uh, it's Caroline uh, calling from Baltimore City. Uh, you want to talk, I think, about uh, another one of the neighborhoods that has lost businesses but has gained residents. So welcome to the show. Thanks for calling. Thanks for having me. Um, just curious um, what your thoughts are on the redevelopment of Harbor Place. I know that's a huge question, um, but just as far as rubber stamping what has been proposed versus letting the people speak and just getting kind of the majority of public opinion, and I think it's going to be a voter issue this fall. Yeah, so again, great question, and thank you, Caroline, for calling in. So I'll say this about Harbor Place. I have a couple thoughts. One is that we have allowed the Inner Harbor to languish to me really is a shame and a shanda. It should be the crown jewel of our city. We know that it once was, it was a great place, not only for tourists and people from out of town to come, but for Baltimoreans to come and hang out and patronize the shops. Uh, you know, we have this amazing promenade, we have the Science Center, we have so much good that's happening in that general area downtown. And so to have allowed this once crown jewel gem of our city to languish, I think is really, really shameful. So I think something must be done. And and I will say this, I have great respect for Mr. Bramble. He and I worked pretty closely on a project in my district. It was Yard 56, which used to be a chemical, uh, the Pemco plant right across from Bayview. And Dave transformed it from a dump into what is now uh, mixed-use development. It's great. It's got a gym. It's got 
a coffee shop and a Chipotle. It's got a grocery store that serves the surrounding areas. It's got housing and apartments. And so I have a lot of respect for Mr. Bramble as a fellow Baltimorean and someone who I think really loves this city. Where I have some questions and where I want to dig deeper is the public commitment that he's asking for for this project. Look, $400 million is a lot. And I want to really understand those numbers. I want to understand, he's said that uh, most of it will not be from the city, that it'll be mostly state and federal. We really need to understand that because the reality, Tom, is that a lot of money, public subsidy, has gone in and around the water. And I think about in my district before I got on the council, there was a major tiff given to the developer of uh, Har Harbor Point, uh, Harbor East. We know the story Port there. Covington, Port Covington. Which is now the Baltimore Peninsula. Correct. Uh, there, there's just been a lot of money that has followed the water. And I hear a lot of frustration from Baltimoreans in saying, look, what about the neighborhoods? What about East and West and North and South Baltimore and our homes? Because when you live in a community where you see vacancy rates at 50 or 60 percent, and then you go to Harbor East or the Baltimore Peninsula, and it is just a completely different situation, I think that is deeply frustrating to folks. And, and there's so, some estimates that say that the city could face a deficit of $100 million. So how do you do Kerwin funding? How do you do the inclusionary housing legislation that you um, referred to earlier in the program, uh, which is basically going to subsidize landlords by letting them offer affordable housing rates uh, that get subsidized by the city. How do you pay, uh, it just came up a couple of days ago, uh, the emergency uh, emergency management services is offering $7,500 retention bonuses to people who currently work on the force because there's such a, a paucity of, of people there. How, how do we pay for all of this? Uh, you know, nobody, nobody disagrees that Harbor Place uh, is a gem and should be, you know, re-gemmed, um, but, but priorities have to be determined. No, I think that's right, and that's why I think it is so important that we be thoughtful and strategic about every single public dollar that we have. Just like you said, there is a bill coming due when it comes to Kerwin, which I'll just be clear, I fully support as someone who taught in two schools, one that was next to an incinerator, the other that was in god-awful condition in terms of the building, all of that investment in our children, in that next generation, I think is critically important, and it is a obligation that we must pay for. And, and so I have no issues with the blueprint. I think that we need to be thoughtful about how that those dollars go. One of the areas where I really want to push is on universal pre-kindergarten. We've seen this in Washington, D.C. and New York City. We know that it is one of the best levers we have to close academic achievement gaps. We know that it can help retain, to the previous caller's point, it can help retain the middle class population that wants to come into Baltimore. And so I'll just say you are absolutely right that I think there's going to be some tough choices ahead. We need to scrutinize every single dollar. And that's why when it comes to Harbor Place, I just want to be really detail oriented about the numbers and whether there should be that level of public subsidy in this project. Baltimore City Councilman Zeke Cohen, he's a candidate for city council president in the Democratic primary 
in May. We'll have more with Councilman Cohen on the other side of a quick break, including your thoughts and comments. 410-662-8780. Our email midday at WIPR.org. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest today is Baltimore City Councilman Zeke Cohen. He represents the 1st District, and he's running for City Council President in the Democratic primary. Nick Mosby, the incumbent, has announced his intention to run, as has Shannon Sneed, a former city councilwoman who ran for the office unsuccessfully in 2020. You are welcome to join us. Our number here at Midday, 410-662-8780. Our email, midday at wipr.org. So we have this email from Melissa regarding Kerwin. We were just talking about that. That's the blueprint for Maryland, the education funding. The city is facing an enormous increase in education spending because of Kerwin uh, and our funding at the maintenance of our efforts uh, and not a penny more. Um, uh, it's simply a fact that the city will have to make cuts to come up with the revenue needed to cover the cost. So what agencies would the councilman first cut and why? Yeah. So, so she's just assuming that, you know, without cuts, we're not going to be able to afford what you've said is, you know, a top priority and something we have to have. Yeah. Look, I, there is a reality here, which is that the maintenance of effort to fund Kerwin is, I think, higher than the finance department in the city thought it was. And I've heard from Mako and a number of counties across the state that folks are really having some sticker shock about just how expensive this plan is. But here is what I will say, which is when you've been a teacher in Baltimore, when you were uh, when you experience the conditions that many of our kids still face, when you see the profound mental health crisis in our schools, when you see the lack of, uh, I mean, you know, we talked about vacancy or vacancies earlier. We don't have enough school psychologists. We don't have enough clinicians. We don't have enough teachers. We don't have enough paraprofessionals. And if we want to build that workforce, it is going to cost us money, not to mention the physical infrastructure, the 21st century schools plan that, again, is expensive. But here's what I will say is I think we've gotten to this place in the city council's history in Baltimore where we have essentially punted our responsibility to our schools. I hear a lot about, oh, the school system, they've got their own school board. That's not a city council thing. Look, when I become city council president, the days of saying city schools are somebody else's problem are over. We are going to lean all the way in because the reality, to Melissa's point, is that there is a significant maintenance of effort that we, the city, pay. And in exchange for the revenue that we put into our school system, we also need to be doing effective oversight. We need to be making sure that Baltimore is a great place to teach and learn. We need to be making sure that, like I said, we are uh, accelerating universal pre-kindergarten. I'll just tell this quick story, Tom, which is my daughter, she's a pandemic kid. She struggled with just anxiety and just meeting people. Um, she's very shy at first. Well, she got in through the lottery 
as a pre-kindergartner at Hampstead Hill, and I can honestly say that her teacher, Miss Caminaris, completely changed my daughter's life. She would come up, she would love on her, she would hug on her, she would make sure that every single day when Maya came to school, she knew that someone in that building loved her. If my daughter can have that experience and be transformed, why can't every single kid in Baltimore? And that's what I'm going to push for. Let's go back to the phones to David, who's on the line in Baltimore. Welcome to the show with Councilman Cohen. Hey, guys. Thanks a lot. Um, Zeke, I like what you're saying. And I just wanted to reiterate a point about public safety. I moved into the city five years ago from Baltimore County. And it's very frustrating because a lot of my friends thought I was crazy. And a lot of them don't want to come into the city because of how unsafe they think it is. You see packs of kids running around, running amok. You see kids on bikes going through lights and on sidewalks. You've got the wheelie boys just going crazy. People with cars doing donuts, all that kind of thing. And unfortunately, the cops really can't do much about it because of the no pursuit rule. And that's what. Okay, so David, we're we're short on time. What's your specific question for Councilman Cohen? Do you have a specific question? it's a huge problem. No, it's just a huge problem, and I just wanted to say that that really needs to be addressed. Okay, thanks for the for the call. So public safety and education are the two things that Baltimore Democrats uh, responded as the top priorities for them. We've talked about education. What is the city council's capacity even to affect the efficacy of public safety here in the city? Yeah, and again, David, I think you're spot on. The reality is that the indicators, the murder rate, Uh, Some of the violent crime has been going trending in the right direction. And I give a lot of credit to uh, Ivan Bates, our state's attorney, who I was really proud to, I think, be the only council person to come out and endorse. Um, I give credit to Mayor Scott and how he has bifurcated his public safety strategy with going after repeat violent offenders, but also giving folks an opportunity to uh, reform and rehabilitate and come back into society. Uh, And then I give a lot of credit to community organizations on the ground that are doing a big part of that lift as part of the mayor and city council's plan. But David is absolutely right, which is that folks in our city don't feel safe. I hear that all the time. So what can a council, a legislative body, do about that? So again, I think a couple things. One, and this is something that we've already done, is bring parties together to engage in Converse in critical conversation about how we can strengthen gaps within our agencies. Quick example is the kerfluffle that we've seen between the Department of Juvenile Services, the police department, and the state's attorney. Look, myself and some of my state delegates wrote a letter to uh, Vincent Chiraldi, the head of DJS, and to Richard Worley, who's the head of the police department, and said to them, you all need to get on the same page. I don't want to hear about it's not our fault. It's the other agency's fault. We are all in this together. We all need to be stewards of our public safety. And to their credit, we found out just recently that uh, Mr. Chiraldi and the Department of Juvenile Services uh, removed the intake director at the Baltimore City Juvenile Detention Center, I think in part as a result of that letter and of the oversight hearing that we held in city council. We need to make sure that young people that commit offenses, especially violent offenses, that there is a clear consequence 
it is doing no service to our children that when they act out, when they commit a violent crime, that we do not hold them accountable. It does a disservice to the victims, to the public, and to those children children themselves because it sends the wrong message. And so I think there is, again, an oversight role for the city council to hold in pulling parties together and making sure we are filling the gaps and that no rock is left unturned because everybody in our city deserves to not only be safe, but to feel safe as well. Let's go back to the phones to Donald, who's on the line in Baltimore City, wants to talk about uh, inspections and, uh, again, this is the delivery of city services. Welcome to the show. Thank you. We used to have individual building inspectors to inspect all of the multiple dwelling properties in Baltimore City. Our previous director of inspections has converted it to the point where the owner of the property is to have the inspection done. Well, if the owner of the property is paying for the inspection, the inspector is going to find nothing wrong with the property, and the tenant is getting cheated because they have smoke alarms with no batteries in them, carbon monoxide detectors that don't work because they're not being inspected properly. And that's a part of Baltimore City's council. They should reinstate individual multiple dwelling inspectors for all of the multiple dwelling properties and single family dwelling properties in Baltimore City. Okay, thanks, Donald. I appreciate that perspective. You talked about hiring more housing inspectors. Uh, it has been uh, outsourced, hasn't it, these it, inspections? It absolutely has, and I think Donald is spot on. And I'll say this, when I go around to some of our senior buildings, they are in some deplorable shape, Tom. I, I, like places that I wouldn't send my dog, let alone my grandmother or my grandfather, where we've seen elevators broken for months on end. We see mold. Uh, we see roofs that are leaking. We see air conditioning or heat units that are broken. It is really shameful. And then on the other hand, when uh, landlords and other people who own properties want to re- re- you know, restore and, and, and renovate these properties, they can't get a permit to do the work. It takes weeks and weeks and weeks to get permits that should take days and days. That's exactly right. And so two separate issues. One is uh, we are. I'm introducing legislation we introduced a couple months ago, the Strengthening Renters Safety Act, which would really hone down on the handful of really bad actors that we have in our city that are landlords, that are essentially slumlords, and hold them accountable to the point where if they do not fix up their property, we take it away from them. I think we need a really firm hand. That does mean, Tom, we're going to have to hire more housing inspectors. We simply do not have enough in the city of Baltimore. And then on the permit side, you're absolutely right. And I want to say that when I become city council president, we are going to make it extremely easy to do business in Baltimore, whether that means through development or whether that means starting a business or simply getting a permit to hold a festival in your community. It should be incredibly easy. It should be mechanized. It should all be online. We are clearly not there yet, but that is going to be a priority for me. The, the one thing I want to say on that, though, is as developers build, as we grow our population, as we make it easier for folks to do business in Baltimore, we're also going to have higher expectations for who gets hired for these jobs 
We are going to make sure it is local Baltimoreans that are benefiting. We want to get the work so that when we build these big buildings, whether it's Harbor Place or somewhere else, that is Baltimoreans that are benefiting. One more quick question. It's not. It's unfair in that it doesn't perhaps lend itself to a quick answer, but one of your opponents, Shannon Sneed, has suggested that the board of estimates should be reduced from five people to three people. This comes up every cycle when people run for city council president. Do you agree? So I put out legislation uh, not too long ago that would have created a commission to study this issue, to look at best practices across the country. I do think that the strong mayor system has not served Baltimoreans the way that it should. I think it is too much power invested in one person. We saw this with the BGE deal. So I would weaken it. Baltimore City Councilman Zeke Cohen. He is a Democrat running for city council president. Nice to see you, and we will continue to see you out on the campaign trail. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Tom. Next week, our series of conversations with the candidates continues with two candidates for mayor of Baltimore. I'll speak with Bob Wallace on Wednesday. He ran for mayor as an independent in 2020, and he's running again as a Democrat this time around. And on Thursday, I'll speak with the incumbent, Mayor Brandon Scott. The Democratic and Republican primaries are on May 14th. Early voting begins May 2nd. If you're eligible but you're not registered, please get registered. You can register by mail or online up to the 23rd of August. You can register in person up to Election Day. Coming up now, it's Here and Now. Stay tuned for that. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. Have a great day. You're listening to Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR.